The content shared on Your Life, Your Wealth Network reflects the views of the host and guests of the program only and are not necessarily the views of Cordasco Financial Network or its advisors. This media production is educational in nature and should not be construed as financial, legal, or tax advice or a solicitation or presentation of sale of any financial products or services. Please consult a professional prior to making any financial, tax, or legal decision. Welcome to the Your Life, Your Wealth Network, helping you find clarity and comfort for your life and wealth. Hey, welcome to the Your Life, Your Wealth podcast. I'm John Walker from the Cordasco Financial Network, a part of Mercer Advisors. So glad you can join us today. And we're going to tackle today the dreaded I word. That's right, inflation. Can't avoid it. It's in the media every day, headline news. You're feeling it at the gas pump. You're feeling it at the grocery store. You're feeling it in lots of different places. And you're probably thinking, what does this mean? What do I do about it? And what's causing it? We're getting a ton of questions. And this recent resurgence in inflation over the past year has a lot of consumers, investors, and market commentators really wondering about its causes. You hear lots of different theories. Is today's inflation a result of quantitative easing? Is it because of the Biden administration's environmental policies, as oil lobbyists are claiming? Is it excessive profit margins from the oil companies, as both the administration and a lot of pundits are claiming? What is it? Our great CIO, Chief Investment Officer at Mercer Advisors, Mr. Don Calcagni, put out some really great information on this whole idea of inflation and its root causes. And I'm going to reference that throughout the day. He's pulled a ton of data, really analyzed it, and I'm going to share some of both his and our thoughts on what this might really mean and what actually might be causing this big issue. So today we're going to tackle and debunk some of these explanations for what's causing inflation today. We're going to dive in a little bit about what the actual causes most likely are. And then I'll give you a little bit of thoughts on what it actually means, what might happen as a result of this, and what it really might mean for you and your portfolio and the markets and your long-term financial plan. The short answer of what is causing all of this inflation is it's complicated, frankly. But if you really dive into the evidence, there's a lot of hard data that says inflation likely has a lot less to do with quantitative easing, stimulus spending, and probably next to nothing to do with environmental policies or even oil company profit margins. In fact, it probably is most likely caused by really simple things. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and an ongoing COVID-related global supply chain issues and the disruptions that are being caused by that and then the subsequent limited global refinery capacities. So what does that mean? One of the things I've seen a lot in the media is quantitative easing. Quantitative easing meaning that the long-held view that printing money out of thin air, right, quantitative easing causes inflation. It makes sense logically. You would say the more money chasing the same amount of goods and services should kind of lead to inflation. It's so logical that it's rarely challenged in our profession. Our chief investment officer, Don Cagney, points to the global financial crisis as a great example of a great test to the theory that quantitative easing causes inflation. From 2008 to 2014, the U.S. Federal Reserve printed approximately four and a half trillion, with a T, dollars out of thin air to inject into the U.S. economy, all to combat the global financial crisis. Remember 2007, 2009, it was catastrophic economically for both the U.S. and globally, but the markets were crumbling. There was all kinds of structural issues. So to combat that, the Fed printed tons and tons and tons of money. 
So the theory should be that QE should have caused inflation, right? It was predicted that inflation would surge, only it didn't. Despite trillions, with a T, trillions in new money, year-over-year inflation fell between 2009 to 2014, from 0.76% annually from a previous average annual rate of 2.52% in the preceding nine years. So why didn't QE cause inflation? Well, frankly, economists have identified that what's more important might be the decline in money velocity. You've heard Steve Cordasco use that term before. It's how often dollars change hands throughout the economy. So if money is sitting in checking accounts and it's not changing hands for economic transactions, then it's not driving up prices. So this idea that QE should have caused inflation, money velocity has to also be a part of that conversation. And if money velocity doesn't increase or remain constant, in fact, during the financial crisis in the subsequent years, money velocity actually declined because people were not buying as much. The demand was not there. In fact, we're seeing that currently as well. The speed of money has declined because of the pandemic, and it's still yet to recover. Where we are seeing the impact a little bit in QE is on the home market. Home prices, which is nearly one-third of what drives the consumer price index, the number that's used to tout how high inflation is, has significantly been impacted by quantitative easing. For example, interest rates fell to a 30-year low of 2.67% by the end of 2020, right? We're seeing those interest rates creep up. This is where the Fed is taking action to try to help resolve this inflationary crisis. But as a result of those suppressed interest rates, home prices rose nearly 40%, 40% between January of 2020 to May of 2022. So Don, in his research, points to this as a huge factor as to why we're seeing a significant increase in the CPI. It doesn't mean that it didn't have some impact, right? To a degree, I'm sure it had a little impact, but this argument that QE automatically that the Fed printed way too much money and it, it's driving inflation today just doesn't quite hold water because there's so many other factors that play a part. All the data historically and most recently in the financial crisis of 08-09 shows that the data just doesn't back up the theory, right? It's a theory searching for evidence. Now, the other thing that's a part of this that's being touted as another big driver of inflation is the economic stimulus, the pandemic spending that the government did to help keep people afloat, right? You're hearing that a lot in the news, that we gave too much money to people, and that's why we're seeing inflation today. Even the term stimulus, as Don says, is probably a little misleading. It wasn't used to stimulate the economy. It was really to keep the economy from collapsing. He uses the term economic life support. The U.S. economy contracted 32.9% in just the second quarter of 2020, right? So that's $2 trillion the economy shrunk by. So the government stepped in and funded unemployment benefits. It helped out the airline industry. It helped out businesses with the PPP program to help keep them afloat and keep people on the payroll. So basically that did really nothing to fuel inflation. It actually just kind of helped the economy from falling apart and probably staved off deflation, which is what the government was really, really worried about. So it's a bit of a stretch, as he says, to think that COVID spending was a huge factor in today's inflation. 
because that money's already long been spent two years ago just to keep the country afloat, keep people employed, keep people able to be safe and maybe not working because their industry was impacted significantly by the pandemic. Let's talk about another big talking point, which is that the U.S. government's energy policy is really to blame for inflation, right? So this idea that the current administration's policy is shifted away from domestic oil and natural gas, right? Because there's this idea that it's presumably focused on renewable energy, which is therefore constraining the supply of oil and gas, right? Don says his research going through it says this is yet another theory in search of evidence. So for example, he points to the active U.S. rig counts, meaning that the amount of possible producers of oil, right, that Drillers can drill if they so choose. In fact, the number of rig counts has more than doubled since just early 2021. Presuming that those oil companies can get the labor and materials they need to do it, the opportunity to drill is certainly there. And U.S. oil and gas production has expanded dramatically over the past decade, regardless of administrative policies, regardless of which party was in power, right? So it's projected to grow even an additional 10% by the end of just next year. So production is not really the issue here. In fact, U.S. energy production has expanded dramatically, continues to expand, and there's really no evidence that any environmental policies are causing any supply constraints that would cause inflation. So people take that data and say, well, that's because the policies are somehow discouraging investment in future expansion. And that doesn't quite hold water either. It's not quite logical that environmental policies of the last 18 months would have discouraged investment in U.S. refineries over the past two decades, right? So this idea that now we're going to see the impact coming forward, that couldn't possibly be causing inflation today. In fact, what really seems more plausible is that recent extreme weather and other economic and natural forces, right? So increased cost of capital, increasing efficiency gains, that's what may discourage future investments in expanding an oil refinery, but nothing really to do with current or even previous administration environmental policies. It's simply market forces driving where oil companies put their money. Let's talk about oil companies making money. A lot of other media frenzy around excessive profit margins around the oil companies. And it's because you see a real disparity in the cost of actual crude oil and what you're paying at the pump, right? And there is, again, a certain logic to this. If oil is not significantly out of sync with what it has cost previously, right? When you see a 10%, 20% increase in crude oil production, but you're feeling a 50, 60, 70% increase at the pump, that just doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't feel right. In fact, what it's more likely is, it's not so much that necessarily the oil companies are gouging, which is what they're being accused of by many. It's that they're getting back to where they were. They're trying to get their profit margins back in line with what they historically was. Let's not forget that the oil companies, whilst still making money, certainly had an impact to their gross profits pre-pandemic. Don points to Marathon Oil particularly as a good example of showing they had a nearly 70% decline in their gross profit during the pandemic. So Marathon Petroleum's 
gross profits are nearly three times higher today than they were during the depths of the pandemic. But their actual profit margins, the percentage, right, is really back in line with where they were pre-pandemic. It's just a huge disparity from where they were, the levels of profits during the pandemic. So much like when you compare the numbers of 2022 to 2020, when you look at things, the world was very, very different when half the globe was shut down because of a pandemic. And so it's not so much that they're gouging. It's not so much corporate greed. It's just them getting back to the levels where they wanted to be. And oil prices are so global that it's really hard to pinpoint one company really controlling things. What it does mean, though, is that it's not really a significant contributor to inflation today. It's simply a return to normal levels of profit, normal levels of corporate revenue with the demand that we should expect as we come out of the pandemic. Okay, John, you just told me about all the things that it's not, right? All the things I hear in the media that you just debunked that say, could they be contributing? Sure, but they're probably not the big drivers. What is actually causing the inflation that I'm feeling today, that I'm seeing today, that's causing these prices to increase? And so it's really hard to analyze this without also acknowledging that it's a global problem. This is not just a U.S. problem. It's not uniquely a U.S. phenomenon. In fact, according to the International Monetary Fund, year-over-year global inflation is currently running at 7.4%. So this is a massive global issue, which strongly suggests that its root causes extend well beyond any U.S. policy, any U.S. corporations, any COVID spending, any QE by the U.S. Fed, right? The United States has a significant impact on the global economy, but nothing that we're doing domestically here is causing global inflation. So what is it? Well, it's really important to acknowledge that prior to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, inflation was already high at 7% and 5.5% for core inflation, right? So inflation was already starting to rear its ugly head. So arguments that the invasion was solely to cause for this are a little overstated. In 2021, U.S. economic growth surged to its highest level since 1984, due in large part to the development and distribution of new COVID vaccines, significant pent-up demand, which we can certainly understand, right? The coming out of the emergence of the pandemic and lockdowns and others, there was significant pent-up demand, and there was certainly trillions in COVID-related spending, so people had money to spend. More importantly, it surged at a time when businesses and subsequently global supply chains and labor markets were all completely unprepared to meet for this rapid resurgence in demand, right? Their recovery happened incredibly quickly. So there's a significant imbalance between supply and demand. That continues to persist today. And what Russia's war on Ukraine did is exacerbate it, continue it, sustain it. And Don Kakagni, our chief investment officer, points to three main reasons why Russia's invasion of Ukraine is acting to sustain and greatly exacerbate this supply and demand imbalance. First, the invasion itself put a huge amount of uncertainty and price volatility into the energy markets, right? So before they invaded, oil was actually declining in price and not by a little bit, quite a bit actually. So oil peaked in October 2021 at around $85 a barrel and it actually fell to $62 in early December. 
that's quite cheap, right? By early March, the price per barrel had peaked at $129. So significant spike in oil prices driven mainly by the uncertainty around what was going to happen to the global oil supply. The second thing that happened was the world united, NATO and the United States and other allies, put significant sanctions against Russian oil exports, right? So that has resulted in a decline of nearly 9.3% in the global supply of oil, removing, as Don points out, a staggering 1 million barrels per day from global markets at a time when, as I just said, U.S. economic growth and hence, therefore, demand of energy remains incredibly strong. So Russian oil production is expected to continue to decline, and that's really significantly impacting the effect and the price of everything from food to gasoline to plastics to airline tickets. All the things that rely on fuel to ship goods and people around the globe are being impacted by the cost of oil that is being impacted by the sanctions that have been put in place against Russia to encourage them to leave Ukraine. And finally, the last thing that the invasion really did was it put a huge stress on global supply chains. Prior to the war, Ukrainian exports were about 10 to 15 to depending on what you look at, of global wheat and corn supplies. They're expected to decline by as much as 80 percent. So as a result, you're seeing this at the grocery store. U.S. food prices are up nearly 5.1 percent since the invasion began, and wheat prices globally are up nearly 20 percent. The other big point that we have to address when it comes to the inflationary pressures we're seeing is around this stress on the supply chains and oil refinery capacity. There's a couple main points that Don Cagney highlights as to why we're seeing this. Let's start with the oil refinery capacity. As we mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of underinvestment in refinery capacity over several decades, right? And the other big thing that's had an uh, impact is there's been significant damages based on weather and other things to U.S. refineries. And maybe the biggest global impact is because of COVID-related shutdowns in not only the United States, but also in China. As Don highlights, experts estimate that approximately one-third of China's refinery capacity is currently offline due to COVID shutdowns. The other impact of China's COVID-related shutdowns is really around the manufacturing of other goods. China is the world's largest manufacturer and contributor to global supply chains. In fact, Chinese exports have fallen from $340 billion in December of 2021 to a low of $217 billion in March of 2022. A significant, significant billions and billions of dollars of exports not happening as a result of COVID. Inflation is typically described or characterized as too many dollars chasing too few goods. Given everything we just shared, what does this mean for potentially what the Fed may do for interest rates with their policy? And more importantly, maybe, what does this mean for you as an investor? Don points to the fact that there's kind of two possible outcomes by what the Fed could do right now. Given that this is a myriad of global and domestic factors contributing to this global inflation, the Fed's ability to tame it through rate hikes and maybe tightening of the money supply might actually be a little limited, right? The Fed really kind of influences demand. It can't 
miraculously increase supply and fix the global supply chains. So many things being attributed to the supply side constraints like shutdowns in China and limited refinery capacity and this war in Ukraine's impact on food and energy prices. Don notes that it's really possible the Fed's actions might be less effective than they think. So what do we do with that? It means the Fed could just stay the course. It could very well continue what it's doing right now. And you've heard some of that tone from Chairman Jerome Powell that they may just plug along with their plan of increasing rates. And it's possible they'll do that. But they are very cognizant of the fact that they don't want to give what they call the proverbial quote-unquote hard landing, right? Which is that they take so much action that they actually push the economy into a recession or into a slowdown, right? Which we've seen lots of complaints in the past about multiple Fed policy decisions over decades of forcing the economy into recessions by their own choices. The second thing they could potentially do is not necessarily cut rates like they've done in the past, but maybe slow down, maybe slow down or lower their projections for future rate hikes, right? Because Don points out there are signs that the economy is slowing. You've got a trade deficit that's rising. You've got home sales declining a bit. You've got a record low for consumer confidence. Ironically, you still have signs that the economy is growing. Unemployment remains near record lows. Consumer spending, despite that low consumer sentiment, remains incredibly strong. And there's lots of indications that the economy still is chugging along with growth. So, it's really difficult to forecast what's going to happen. There's no certainty. Do you hear anybody on the media telling you or in the newspaper that we're headed definitely to a recession? They're just guessing. There's no certainty of what lies ahead. There's certainly an increased probability of recession. Don points it to be a 50-50. Economists are estimating that it's probably in about the 50% range currently that we might fall into a, a recession here in the States. But know that the odds of any given year ending in recession are about 15%. So more likely, but it's a guessing game at this point. But there is the possibility that the Fed might change course at some point later in this year. And so that's important to understand because that may have an impact on what you may want to think about as an investor. So one thing we can tell you that will definitely be in the future, and it's not new and it's not unique to this year, is that we can certainly promise that there's going to be uncertainty. There's just a high degree of uncertainty this year. So if the economy tips into a recession, no idea how severe it'll be or how long it would last. But there's no indication or no real reason to think it would be any more significant than the average recession, right? So it's not 2008. We don't have an over-leveraged banking sector. In fact, the banks are really well capitalized. The pandemic has uh, largely subsided, at least outside of China and some other parts of the globe. So historically speaking, the average recession has lasted an average of 10 months. And the average expansion of the economy has lasted for over five years. If we fall into recession, it doesn't mean it's going to be long lasting or deep. And the other thing we don't know is now that we've pushed into a bear market, we don't know how long it will last, but we do know they're very normal. You've heard countless times in the past us on the podcast talking about how pullbacks, drawbacks, how they impact and how frequent they are and how sometimes not noticed they are, right? But since 1926, there have been 26 bear markets, about one every four years, and they usually last an average of nine and a half months. So that means the market, when it last peak, was January 3rd, 2022. So by that math, we're already about six months in 
to this bear market. It's entirely plausible that we might be getting close to coming out the other side. We don't know. We don't know, but we can look to trends and history as a guide, right? They say history doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes. We can simply look at this as a possible what could happen and what we know from history to tell us. It's far better to be positioned well today because we don't know when the market will recover, but we know that once it does, the returns are usually significant and they usually last. What do I do with all this information you just shared with me, John? What does this mean for me? It means that as painful as this might feel right now, there are positive signs. There is a rational reason for why it's happening. And we can look to data to say, what does this really mean? And what do I do with it? The key here is control the things you can control. Take a look at your budget. See what you can do from a cash flow perspective. Find what you need versus what you want. Manage through the things that you control. We can't control the markets. We can't pinpoint when we're going to hit bottom. We can't pinpoint when the recovery is going to start. We can't tell you how long it's going to last. But we can tell you that history says that once the recovery starts, it could be significant and it generally lasts. And you want to participate in that. And the best way for you to do that is to reassess where you're at, take a look at your overall strategy or overall objectives. If things haven't changed, it's the perfect time to rebalance. It's the perfect time to make sure that your portfolio aligns with your risk and objectives and make sure that you weather this as well as you can and participate when the eventual recovery starts. There's certainly a propensity to react emotionally. When you see your statement and your portfolio is declining and you're feeling it on both ends because you're spending more money at the gas pump and at the grocery store, and this is where people make mistakes. And this is why it's so valuable to work with Hordasco Financial Network, a part of Mercer Advisors, and work with someone who does sound financial planning. Not only do we help folks be prepared for this, but we can ground you to your overall financial plan. We expect these things. We prepare for them. We help you understand what impact they make to your long-term financial prospects. So if you have questions, if you want a little more information about the data that I shared from Don Calcagni, if you want to understand better how working with a financial planning team can help you prepare for these types of eventualities, reach out to me or any of my great team members at the Cordasco Financial Network, a part of Mercer Advisors at 855-558-3500. That's 855-558-3500. Or email us at asksteve at cfnplan.com. That's asksteve at cfnplan.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we're always here to help. I'm John Walker from the Cordasco Financial Network, a part of Mercer Advisors. Thanks so much for listening to the Your Life, Your Wealth podcast. Have a great week. If you're interested in learning more about applying the principles we discuss to your personal financial circumstances, please visit Cordasco Financial Network at cfnplan.com.